This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Cavalry Audio. My guest today has been described as everything from a geopolitical risk consultant to the face of modern fascism to a Croatian race scientist. He also has one of the most popular substacks, has interviewed some of the most significant independent journalists and leaders of the tech world from Glenn Greenwald to Mark Andreessen, and regularly, regularly appears on top-rated podcasts like Red Scare. A lot of smart people seem to think he's a smart person. He goes by the name Nicola Soldo, although that does not appear to be his real name, and by all impressions, he operates anonymously. So, Nicola, what are you? Are you some shadowy internet freak, a notable public Public intellectual, both. Matteo, nice to meet you. Nice to be on your show. I've been looking forward to doing this for a while. Oh, so the pleasure's the all answer mine. Answer to your question is: I am a guy who talks a lot of shit because I have to process the amount of shit that's delivered to us daily through the media. So whatever I regurgitate out there is me trying to figure out what it all means. Beyond that, there's not much to it. I'm not a smart guy. I'm not anything special. I just talk a lot of crap and people seem to enjoy it. That does seem to be the case. But if we were to look at this from an objective perspective, you you uh, occupy an interesting place on the Internet of these anonymous accounts that are associated with, let's call it right wing or reactionary views. But from a European perspective, right, which is a different brand, a lot of people, uh, you know, conflate the American brand and how Americans see reactionary, a reactionary or right wing um, views uh, with the European delegation of that. And it does seem to be that you have, you know, in a, you have some inside info and that you have been part of the, uh, you know, international security or uh, or military apparatus of some sort. And, you know, and you can uh, you can validly be described as a geopolitical risk cons- consultant. And that's why some people do come to you, particularly Greenwald and promote your Substack because you have particular insights about geopolitics, uh, and, you know, whether it's the U- uh, Russia, Ukraine war and the other um, the other strategic uh, initiatives around that. Would that be would that be accurate? Partially accurate. I'm not going to give myself any credentials that I don't have. I don't want to be a liar or a bullshitter. Sure, sure. There are certain claims made about me that are not entirely true. Some of them are taken out of context. Some of them are the end result of jokes. Mm-hmm. But I have been writing about this field for a long, long time, mm-hmm. uh, even though there was a long pause prior to the Trump era. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of people that I know in this milieu that I speak to frequently, that I'm friends with, I have relationships with, personal, professional, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Beyond that, I'm not going to say much, but I do not want to, uh, let's say, overstate Mm -hmm. who I am, what I am, but I'm in that area. Understood. So your Substack, I'd be interested to hear what you attribute its success to, because you will cover a, a wide swath of topics, everything from uh, Euro, European geopolitics to and something. One common thread that I've noticed from you is you like to explore uh, a variety of social issues around sex, around the offshoots of the sexual revolution. Whether it was, you know, fascinating. I think maybe seven, eight part compendium on the AIDS, the history of the AIDS crisis in the seventies and eighties and into the early nineties, um, or recent exploration of some literature around the sexual revolution. How would you describe your Substack? My Substack started out very simply like this. I used to do some writing around 20 years ago 
all that stuff has disappeared. That was Internet 1.0. Those were webzines, mostly political, based out of the United States, mm-hmm. places like Texas, et cetera. But those were all tiny operations. And for a long time, a little over a decade, I did not do any writing for any webzines or any print publications for the simple fact that what I wanted to talk about, what I think I had to say, what I wanted to say, the audience really wasn't there. It was mm-hmm. far too niche. What blew it all open was Trump. Mm-hmm. And here's why. For a long time, the right wing, let's say, in the United States was dominated by two factions. You had the Chamber of Commerce type. Those guys were all about money. Mm-hmm. And that's the only principle. And the neoconservative type. Uh, the neoconservative type managed to expel other types of right wingers. Let's say Pat Buchanan types, paleoconservatives, etc. So these guys were reduced to a fringe minority that really had no serious voice. And any voice that they have was very stale and stayed. They needed mm-hmm. a new generation to come up. Trump blew the whole thing open. And what happened with that was that there was a growing appetite for alternative viewpoints on the right because everybody was just so frustrated with how wimpy the GOP became, how they were so happy losing every political battle but maintaining their principles, which really meant maintaining the cocktail circuit invitations that they mm-hmm. were getting in D.C. They wanted to be cool. So there was a whole bunch of us who were let's say, in suspended animation or hibernation uh, on political forums, on mailing lists, et cetera, who have some schooling, some of us a lot of schooling, and I'm sure you know who I mean. Mm -hmm. And we formed these little groups, and we basically spurred out autism-wise for years, just talking to ourselves, educating each other on matters of philosophy, history, culture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So when this happened, this whole thing opened up. A lot of us joined uh, social media let's say Twitter, for example, where I met you, and we developed followers. Mm-hmm. Now, Substack hit the scene three years ago, let's say, but I first saw it through Yasha Levine, who is a left-wing writer out in California. I think you know who he is. He's tied with uh, with Mark Ames from The Exiled. He's from The Exiled. And he was one of the first guys to adopt Substack. And so I was tracking that because I was looking for a platform. At the time, the big platform was Medium, mm-hmm. which really wasn't doing well, and it's crashed and burned since. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened was I start I started seeing some people adopt Substack, and I saw Taibi go for it. Mm-hmm. And once Matt Taibi went for it, he's one of the greatest investigative journalists of all time. He's by fantastic. The way. Yeah. Even though I don't agree with him and everything, he's awesome. I have to give him you know his due. And so I said, you know what? If it's good enough for Matt Taibi, let me try. And what I did is I leveraged the audience I built up on social media and the older friends I had to follow this. And so what I did, my strategy was this. Do not focus on strictly one subject matter because people get bored of that shit. Give them a lot. Mm-hmm. What were they looking for? Why are people turning to alternative media, map? Because they're frustrated with the shit that they're getting. It's all the same stuff. Everybody knows what they're going to read. Outrage, clickbait shit, or whatever this and that. They're looking for alternative viewpoints, but they got to be intelligent and somewhat humorous. Mm-hmm. So I developed certain product lines. One thing I do is every weekend I do a compendium four news pieces and an interesting article as a public service for everybody to give them different points of view on topics. They can be either from a right-wing perspective, a left-wing perspective, a centrist perspective, as long as they're interesting and informative. I also like to do these book series where I cover uh, certain books I think of our importance. Uh, I did a book on Paul Klevnikov, 
who covered uh, Boris Berezovsky and the Russian oligarchs, their rise. Yeah, and just so and everyone out there understands, down. this one was an exploration of essentially the rise of Vladimir Putin or the circumstances that led to his rise and uh, an incredible history of Russia in the 1990s uh, after the fall of communism that I think really explains a lot of what we see. And we're going to get to this in more detail. But um, Nikolo's, you know, uh, uh, kind of essentially book report of this book tells you a lot of the foundational history of, of the Russia-Ukraine conflict and where we are geopolitically right now yeah precisely so we'll talk about that in a bit and a lot of people like that as well and then the third product line that i came out with which is by far the most popular and which i'm dying to turn back to is interviews mm -hmm. so i used to read a lot of these old school interviews uh even playboy interviews from the 70s they were, they were great. really thorough they were open they were honest and they were great mm -hmm. And a lot of that is actually it's entirely missing from the media landscape now. There was a writer at the AV Club um, from The Onion before it went to shit. He used to do these celebrity interviews with these over-the-hill stars. Mm -hmm. These are guys who weren't looking for any more roles, so they were free to speak openly. And they were fantastic interviews because they were very candid. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know what? I think I can do this. I know a lot of interesting people who are, want to do this, and they'll never get put in front of a publication, on a publication, etc. Mm -hmm. So I came up with the idea of doing this. Interview formats, the format is very simple. Stupid, smart, <laughs> and even more stupid. Because the point is, the stupid point is to humanize these people, mm -hmm. show them who they are. One of the best uh, responses I got was from a guy in Florida who I've known for a bit. He goes, Nick, a lot of these people you interview I hate until I read the interview you did with them. Mm -hmm. They're actually not that bad people. So the point is to humanize them, to have a little bit of fun with them, to poke a little bit of fun of, uh, with them. The best people to have for these uh, as subjects for these interviews are people who take themselves way too seriously yep. or people who have a really good sense of humor. And so a lot of them have become really popular. The two biggest ones, Mark Andreessen, huge, 200,000 mm -hmm. views. And of course, Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. I tell everybody, whenever people ask me about my writing and they don't know about me, I usually direct them to the Greenwald interview first. And I... Tell them, look at the first question. And the first question I asked about him was, why are you gay? And he <laughs> and took it answer, really well. His answer was actually hilarious. And it was, it, hilarious. It was, it was from a from a perspective where you're like, okay, wait a second. If we could look at the most uh, the the caricature of aggressive young uh, hyper uh, hyper heterosexual males and the eye rolling behavior that they engage in, and and Glenn and obviously and just saying, I looked at how heterosexual young males were acting, and I said, I want no part of that. And I, even you know uh, someone like us who uh, does bask in the, some of those character traits was like, I could see that. It's like, okay, we, we yeah, sometimes exactly. are pretty ridiculous. It was funny. It wasn't Absolutely. defensive. It wasn't defensive. Not and so so these interviews have become really successful they drew a huge audience and i established a very loyal audience with this match mm -hmm. i have a really loyal one my churn is very tiny mm -hmm. i'd like to get a bigger audience and i'm going to be working on that soon but i'm very happy with what i have here my initial goal and it was a very uh let's say humble one was to get 1,000 paying subscribers and i blew past that a long time great so i'm really happy with this the great thing is, it's something that I love doing. Uh, every Saturday, I crank these things out. I enjoy doing this. Yeah. So uh, this, so basically, uh, the opportunity that was created by Trump, not by him, but indirectly from him, sure. and the rise of Substack to, uh, to counter legacy media opened up this avenue for me.
Interesting. Um, and so to take once again, and, and you mentioned, and I agree with you that Donald Trump did not in and of itself, him, uh, himself create this opportunity, but that phenomenon was, uh, did create, you know, kind of tore a, a hole in the space time continuum or the universe and everybody's understanding of it. And a lot of people reacted a lot of different ways to that. Um, you have, despite having, you know, kind of a European and international uh, uh, nexus, um, you obviously have a ton of insights about American politics and culture. And, you know, let's talk about the history and the the notable phenomenons of American culture and politics over the last six, seven years that leads up to uh, a recent idea of yours, which you acknowledge you get a lot of opposition to. And I will tell you that I disagree with it. And we're going to get into a, a discussion of it. Um, but let's talk the, the recent history of the United States um, with your explanation of the Donald Trump phenomenon. And, you know, a place where we do agree is that he failed. Um, why, you know, what, what gave rise to the Donald Trump phenomenon? What, uh, was he a success or failure? Why was he a success or failure? And then another, uh, uh, of those phenomenon, you know, in recent American history that you've commented on is that you believe that the Black Lives Matter movement also failed and was essentially, you know, mostly there just to destabilize the Donald Trump regime. All right. So that's a lot there, but I'll cover it all. Very simply, this is what happens during the Obama administration. And it, the roots were there prior to it, but it really came out during the Obama administration was there was an increasing divide between the base of the GOP, its voters, and the leadership. Mm -hmm. And what they saw was a constant surrender to the Democrats on all key issues that mattered to them. Immigration, most of all, the biggest uh, stab in the back for them. But there were also other matters, you know, things like the deindustrialization of the heartland, especially the Midwest. The, the opioid crisis, all that stuff. And so what happened was for the first time since 1992, a we call it a paleoconservative platform popped up. Trump was very much an opportunist here. Mm -hmm. He took Pat Buchanan's 1992 GOP platform and made it his own because he saw the opportunity was there. Trump in the past denounced Buchanan over and over again mm -hmm. as a Jew hater, as this and that, blah, 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 blah. But he took it and he ran with it and he destroyed. And what that showed was the detachment between the GOP base and the leadership. So, of the so let me ask you one question, because this one, I think, is what has thrown so many Americans for a loop. Why, why was Donald Trump the man who did this of all people? The reason why is this, because he was the only one to spot the opportunity and he, did. he had the ability to play the media because the guy's a media character. Yeah, he's an yeah. actor. He's all of that. He's been dealing with the media his entire life. Uh, Roy Cohen taught him everything he needed to know about how to deal with malicious media back in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. He was tied with Roy Cohen. who was a big-time fixer. So Trump saw that opportunity. He completely moved away from his own politics, which are very liberal, by the way. He's really a country club conservative. Yeah. Uh, country club Republican, but he saw the opportunity, he seized it, and he ran with it. And there was a couple of times during the primaries where he almost went back to his old ways, mm -hmm. but he got screamed at a lot and it forced him back on that route, and he won. There's a 2017 interview with Pat Buchanan in Politico, and I urge everybody to read this all the time. Pat Buchanan said it the best. He said, he took my ideas, ran with it, and won, but what he said was, it's probably too late for America to implement those ideas. 
and that's another subject. That let's try to get into that subject a little bit. In that the and it's uh, you can really look at it in analyzing Donald Trump now in 2023, where he's become this uh, uh, just this blathering character on like his own small social media platform, um, and and just incessantly whining. Um, and and I think someone put it that at least in 2016 he had an interesting message that resonated with these some uh, certain people because he was telling people that that GOP base that you mentioned you're getting screwed, and now his entire message messages, I'm getting screwed, right? And that's why it's not appealing and why his 2024 presidential campaign is going to be a disaster. It already is. Um, so what did, uh, uh, in trying to implement this recalibration of American trade, um, closing off the southern border, maybe trying to, to you know, to roll back some uh, some of the, the evolution of social mores and whatnot, it, it failed. The Trump Trumpian revolution failed. Why do you think it did so spectacularly? Well, here's the thing. First of all, on your first point, uh, with him playing martyr, victim mm -hmm. complex, it wasn't about Trump the man in 2016 that took him there. Partially it was, especially because how he slapped down the media and his opponents. People loved it. They want a brawler. They want somebody fighting for them. Sure. So yes, in that aspect it was. But really it was the ideas, anti-immigration, border control, all this stuff. That's what kept everybody going. Yeah. If he was acting as he did, but using the same politics that his opponents were, no one would have really given a shit. They might have had a laugh. Yeah. yeah. So with respect to the failure of his agenda, it was very simple. The first initial problem was staffing. The GOP took control of staffing. Anybody who wasn't a part of conservative Inc. or tied to them or vetted by them, they took that resume. They ripped it up, threw it in. Mm -hmm. I got buddies in the States who have never wanted to act in political life, never wanted a job there. But when Trump got into office, and these are guys with Ivy League degrees, masters, some PhDs, mm -hmm. they said they didn't even get a call back, even though they were overskilled for the positions that they were applying for. So that's the first thing. They basically snookered him right there, right away. Personnel is policy. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing. The second thing is you had the various intelligence agencies uh, colluding with the media to mm -hmm. constantly keep the fire under his feet. For the worst and most insane, most illogical conspiracy theories yep. like Trump, Russia. Yeah, it was complete yeah. garbage. We all knew it. But here's the thing, Matt. It yeah. worked. Oh, they kept they the pressure on. Yeah, yeah, they kept the pressure they destroyed on him, him. and it worked. Mm -hmm. So not only was he getting subverted internally, but he was, of course, getting subverted by arms of the states and their partners like in mainstream media and even in big tech. Mm -hmm. With respect to BLM, that was strictly an operation backed by them party, Soros, various NGOs to destabilize the country during COVID mm -hmm. where he couldn't do fuck all because he took the position, the profile position on COVID. Mm -hmm. I'm an agnostic on that, by the way. Um, and so I wouldn't say that BLM failed, Mateo. It's a tool. And mm -hmm. they'll pull out that tool again if need be. So here's here's an interesting question, because uh, looking at American history and, you know, most notably in the early 70s, where there was a, a real backlash against progressive overreach and riots and left wing violence and whatnot. And that led to everyone forgets because Richard Nixon uh, experienced Watergate and uh, resigned in infamy uh, is that Richard right before he resigned only less than two years, he destroyed 
in the 1972 49 election. to one. Insane. Insane. So the last time that there was uh, uh, left-wing overreach and riots in the street and left-wing violence, it produced a backlash, uh, an electoral backlash, and it absolutely did not this time. BLM, instead of that being off-putting to a lot of the voting base and a lot of people that didn't, you know, that weren't part of the left-wing activist class, got support from corporations, from institutions. Everybody kind of rallied behind these people that were, you know, I think we now can go look and uh, may, there might be a sliver of the, the Black Lives Matter movement that had virtuous and noble uh, principles and aims and motivations, but a lot of it was just there to be to destabilize and, and uh, for destructive purposes, but it seems to have uh, accomplished its goal. There was no electoral backlash. Why do you think that was this time? Here's why, Matt. It's because 1972 America is not 2022 America. Absolutely. The main reason why, to, uh, to answer your question, is that that was initially liberalism in overdrive with overreach. What they did not have was anything buttressing it, meaning institutional support. In the 50 years since then, these liberals, or even Marxists, depends on how you view them and depends on how they self-identify, they have crawled through the institutions, capturing them one by one by one by one, not only capturing these institutions, but institutionalizing their viewpoints, not just in governments, but in business as well. You look sure. at DEI, you look at ESG, that all comes out of the universities. That all comes out of those concepts that they built out there. Mm -hmm. So in 1972, let's say academia, academia was still a very conservative discipline, even though there was a lot of liberalization happening, even some Marxism, but compared to today, it's day and night. So these people have had 50 years to sandbag their uh, advances, political, social, cultural, to the point where conservatism is not as strong a force. There is no more silent majority like there was under Nixon. Yeah. That's gone. Yeah, it's gone. America 1972 is as different to America 2022 as America 1972 is to America 1882. Uh, an interesting point of view, and I agree with that, but, and I, I'm going to give you the, op of course, give you the opportunity to explain yourself, but I think the observation that you just made runs contrary to one of your, your most, you know, kind of recent, uh, recent bromides that you've run with, which is called the, the notion of Turbo America, um, and you've titled a piece on that, I believe uh, you captioned it, Never More United, Never More Powerful Than It Is Today, and you described it at, you mentioned, I get a lot of shit when I bluntly state that the USA has never been more powerful than it is today. People will point to the USA's deindustrialization, uh, de its opioid, opioid death crisis, its falling living standards, its disappearing middle class, crumbling infrastructure, the growing divide between red and blue states, the collective meltdown of half of, half of America thanks to Trump's surprise win in 2016. All of these points are valid, but they also mean fuck all in the greater, in the greater scheme of things. You believe America has been never been more powerful than it is today, so how do you square that with the observation you just made about all fundamental American values that were held on for a long time now essentially having been eviscerated and us showing a, a far uh, uh, just the the essentially, uh, you know, dissolving of national pride uh, that allows these uh, allows these left wing movements to operate with impunity and burn down communities with no backlash whatsoever. Here's why. When I say America has never been more united, what I mean is it's never been politically more united, especially along the lines of the elites. I'm a proponent of elite theory, whereby elites are the ones that drive history, culture, institutions. Mm -hmm. The little people don't matter. One of the things I always admired about America growing up, and I grew up in Canada, mm -hmm. not far from Western New York states, is you guys had civic lessons in school. And it was always interesting to me because we didn't have that in Canada. 
you guys knew your constitution, you guys knew your Bill of Rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what that did is that left you Americans feeling that each individual is important, how my rights are sacrosanct, uh, I have a say in everything. You don't. Those days are gone. Mm-hmm. With respect to the other points is this. The reason why I think America is more powerful than it ever has been is it's got such an advanced head start, uh, let's say, distance from it to its potential competitors, China in first place, Russia in a distant second place from there. Uh, every and, and here and people always say, America, Nicola, you're wrong. America was at its most powerful in the 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed. There is a valid argument in that. But what I say is, guys, in the 1990s, not everybody in the world was walking around with a cell phone, smartphone, with all those apps, with all that video, absorbing all this American culture like like they are now. Everybody walking around the world, except in a few countries, are basically inundated with the American message, the American ideas, whenever they open up their phone. They got the American tech there. They've got the video there. You know, everybody watches YouTube. Everybody's on Facebook. Everybody's using Instagram. And these are all American things. And these are all very personal things. And they become a part of your identity. So you've created this mass of Americans who have never been to America. A lot of them don't even speak English. But a lot of their reference points are American. Sure. And so I, the reach continue. the reach that the United States has into the personal lives of people all over the world has never been anywhere as huge as it is right now. So despite setbacks like Iraq or Afghanistan, and I question if there are setbacks, like people say, but just to, to just to elaborate on the point, despite those setbacks, America is so far advanced technologically, so far ahead of everybody else financially, that everyone has to try to play catch up. China is doing a good job at it, but they're still far, far away. A lot of people, especially people younger than you and younger than uh, younger than I, especially, they see a lot of this political destabilization that happened under Trump as indicative of a coming civil war. But it's not. What it was was we're too plugged into media. We get hyped by everything. We do. We lose our sense of context. If you look at the 1960s in your country, Mateo. You had these race riots in the cities. They burned them down. They were going for two, three weeks at a time. People do. You don't for, have that have anymore. These were legit. Those, yes. These were legit grassroots race riots. They weren't top-down BLM. Go out there and smash these cities. These yeah. were real things, right? Yeah. America was cracking at the seams. Now, and here's the, and here's the best example, the best piece of evidence. This last midterm that just passed, nobody on the hard left in the Dem Party got into Congress. Nobody on the hard right, except for maybe MTG, got into Congress uh, on the GOP side. So basically, the I, want, I don't want to call it extremes, but the hard factions to the left and to the right of the Dems and the GOP, they've basically fallen off. It's all very conformist. It's all very consensus-driven uh, GOP and Dem. And those are the elites. The elites, what they did is they tamed the populist, let's say, rebellion that represented the Trump administration and they've gone back to business as usual and that's what i mean by turbo america and let me add one more point i wrote a piece prior to that about a year before that called the desquamation of america Mm -hmm. desquamation is when you shed one layer of skin to reveal another and my my idea is that america has fundamentally changed it's no longer the america of even the 80s or the 90s it's something or the early 2000s or the early 2000s it's more ideological now let's say and so when you match this uh, ideological fervor that we're seeing and when it's institutionalized and you combine it with the free market that's always been America, the business of America is business, 
it's a different America. So this one's much more aggressive, socially, culturally, uh, financially, exploitative, et cetera. And that's why I decided to use the term turbo. And I see your point. And listen, a lot of the things that you just said uh, are cannot be argued, right? They're, they're, they're correct in terms of the elite snuffing out the supposed populist revolt that you started to, that you saw in 2016, which I admit that I didn't see coming, at least. And it took me a little, I was behind the curve on that one. Absolutely. Both on the left with Bernie Sanders and on the right with Donald Trump. So in terms of snuffing out populist energy and returning to business as usual, I think, uh, what was the Mad Men line? You won't even, you won't even believe how much this didn't happen. It's like the Donald Trump thing and the Bernie Sanders. Everyone forgets that Bernie Sanders was a pretty formidable figure there for maybe two, three years. Nobody talks about yeah. Bernie Sanders anymore. Nobody talks about the ideas that he had or his movement is done. So you are absolutely correct there. And you're correct about um, uh, American cultural uh, colonization, right? Even though I think, and I see your point with with uh, with cell phones and with a digitized connected world. However, that conversation is is not new, right? We, they've been talking about this for 30, 40 years right now. I remember my first experiences in Europe were studying abroad during college and I, it, the exact same conversations were being had. Oh, we're becoming, you know, I'd listen to the French and the British students argue over, you know, whether or not it's a problem that they're all, I remember one French student saying, hey, we're all just becoming cute little Americans and you're listening to Outkast and all the shows on the BBC other than the news and maybe Top of the Pops were American imports. Um, so uh, sure, we are the most powerful powerful culturally that we've ever been. I still think, and where I, I you know, my counter argument to you is, I think you're looking at a, a, a sporting match where a team, you know, it's called basketball, is up was up by 40 points. Now they're up by 30 points. They still look unbeatable, but they're not quite, you know, technically, objectively, they're not as far ahead as they were because, and, and as you, uh, you know, as, as you acknowledge, there is some truth to, I mean, listen, sure, I think we're still far ahead of China, but they're a lot closer than they were in the 90s. They're a lot closer than they were in the 2000s. And another way that you put Turbo America is our ability to coerce uh, others. And I think that even though we were unable to coerce a lot of people, uh, a lot of uh, other allies, during uh, around Iraq that wasn't look we were able to coerce all of them in 1991 right so it matters that yeah. if we tried to do something as stupid as Iraq right now I don't think we'd be able to do it, it would be even more of a disaster so I, I don't think that's necessarily indicative of our power to coerce our allies it, it also the a factor it also depends on is is the cause um, and as you acknowledged in having this discussion on on Red Scare is that I, I don't think you can define all of this just by the power and the conformity of the elites because when people don't like the country that they're in and don't feel good about it and don't feel any pride, I think that's a factor that has to play into this calculation, right? And as you acknowledge... Well, I tell you, the one thing I tell everybody with this is you cannot discount energy. And there is sure. a bad energy There's in bad your country. Not just here. your country, but there is. It's, it's, it's bad a bad energy. energy. You can feel it. You can feel it. Absolutely. I felt it when I was there over Christmas. You can never discount that. And I always tell people, I'm not wedded to Turbo America. It's just my idea. Sure. You want to criticize it? Go ahead. I'm cool with that. Mm -hmm. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And one of the things I say is you can never discount the energy. But the question is, how does that energy manifest itself? Does it manifest itself into real opposition? Is there a capability for that to happen? I think that... Everybody lives so precariously now, Mateo, mm -hmm. financially, except the really, really rich people, that everybody is constantly worried about the next year, not like they were before. When I was growing up, I remember being in the States in the 80s. You talk to random people, whether I was at a soccer tournament in Ohio yeah. or I was down in uh, Myrtle Beach in South Carolina, 
the nicest, friendliest people. Doesn't matter if they're white, black, whatever, except yeah. for inner city guys up the north. They're just always shits. But <laughs> you go to North America now because Canada's the same. Canada's even worse than the States. Yeah. Everybody's constantly on edge. Everybody's yes. stressed out. Everybody's worried about the next year. And that's that negative energy that you cannot discount. Yes. The question is, how does it manifest itself? So, so, and and I don't see that manifesting itself okay, into the, opposition. Sure. But you're expecting it to manifest itself in, as opposition. And uh, I think there was a chat between Yarvin and Michael Anton where it, it doesn't manifest, you know, and the way that they described it, but it's similar to how I see it. It doesn't manifest itself as opposition. It manifests itself as continued uh, uh, managed decline and, and dystopia and, and ennui, right? And that everyone just, as they put it, uh, clown world can go on for another 200 years. We can exist in this clown world where everybody's staring at absurdities that they don't like but they feel impotent to do anything about continually and I think the that that dystopian impotency about changing any of the things and acknowledging that they that that the society operates by less rational uh, rational and moral principles is a bad thing and it's dragging everyone down I mean that's what listen I, I don't know what the hell I can do to to help this out I guess part of what I'm trying to do is put my ideas out there into the public venue have conversations like this and that's what I'm trying to do my little part to rise out of that dystopian counter clown world however uh, this this um, the you know, th this kind of stale dystopian energy can continue for a long time and just continue to go downhill. And I think that's where it's going. But that in terms of Turbo America, well, I, mean, I, I, I address this as well. I address this as well, Max. Mm -hmm. A lot. Like you look at the infrastructure in the United States, it's fucking third world in a lot of places. It looks We're old. just falling. Absolutely. It's old. It's horrible. It's creaking. It's busted. But what I tell everybody is you cannot look at the United States uniformly. Mm -hmm. What really matters, and we have to be very blunt and realistic here, what matters is Boston to Washington, Chicago, uh, Houston, Dallas, San Francisco down to San Diego, and maybe Seattle because Amazon's up there. Can't, and maybe, can't maybe leave out Miami, Miami anymore. Miami's now in the <laughs> yeah, conversation. You can't. Miami's important. You have to keep that yeah. in. But the rest of it doesn't matter. And, and I've written about this. I say it does not matter to these guys in Congress uh, whether you're from – Davenport, Iowa, or whether you're from Stuttgart, Germany, they look at you the same way. Mm -hmm. You are an imperial citizen, and that's it, a subject. Let's mm -hmm. say not even a citizen, you're a subject. If West Virginia goes to shit, who gives a fuck as long as the money keeps pumping in Washington? Right. Well, okay. I, I, I once again don't necessarily disagree, but one aspect of this where it does matter is military recruiting. Okay, because people, those are the people that go into the military and they don't want to go yeah. anymore. They don't want military. They are having a major recruiting uh, uh, problem with the military. They, I think they found they fell twenty five percent short of their recruitment targets last year. And let's be honest, the ones that are joining ain't exact. They're not. We're not sending our best anymore. And that's where I, I go to the you know forty points ahead to thirty points ahead is like listen. Uh, you spend eight times what anybody else is spending on the military, you're going to make a lot of things go boom and you're going to be a threat. Nobody's going to want to come fight you. However, eventually that's going to catch up. I, I, it's the fact that nobody... Things eventually catch up. Matt, sure. And I also address this. Mm -hmm. My guiding principle with respect to the United States is you have to see everything through the phrase, the business of America is business. Sure. When these things start impacting the bottom line of corporate America, banking, finance that's when these guys raise the flag and say you know what uh-uh that's it cut it out we gotta reverse this we gotta change this up a little bit that's when it happens mm -hmm. but here's the thing the genius of america is in its ability to absorb ideas concepts that seem initially threatening or damaging repurpose it co-opt it monetize it 
and weaponize it. Mm -hmm. Like look at ESG, for example, environmental, uh, social, and governance. Mm -hmm. It seems like a fucking drain on corporate finances. It's just bullshit work, et cetera. But there's a brilliance in it because you're creating barriers to entry for competition. American companies adopt ESG. Oh, by the way, if you want these contracts or you want to deal with this, you have to have an ESG score at this point. Boom, the Americans run the show there. So there's 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 a there's a there's a there's a reason to the madness. But what I said is when it impacts the bottom line, that's when we're gonna see everything starting to change. When is that gonna happen? Well, that managed decline, Yarvin says it could last 20 years. My idea is another generation before it sets in. 20 more years. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. No, no, interesting. That that that, that is an interesting perspective in, in terms of the timeline and duration here. Um, and you know, in terms, it is really still incredible how the the utter dominance of the American business community. And as every Absolutely. time every time a new phase of you know international commerce comes around, we still produce all. All the fucking industry leader. It's really crazy. But I, I wanted to move on and kind of segue. And I think of the the segue topic here uh, until you know, as we we're going to go to your your work on the AIDS um, uh, pandemic and uh, and the history of it in a moment. But the uh, one you know the connective tissue here is obviously that involved a lot uh, of discussion around uh, initial gay liberation in the '60s and '70s. So we'll get to that in a second. But you've mentioned gay rights as the turbo one of if not the one of turbo americas tools of international colonialism and, and colonization in going around and essentially demanding that other countries adopt the view and approach on uh on homosexuality or alternative sexual preferences that we do and actually like you know that is almost a tool of colonialism at cultural colonialism at this point well absolutely the and i'm going to be writing a piece on this shortly with respect to george soros and his NGOs that operate globally. Uh -huh. the, in any type of colonialism, you always do divide and uh, divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. And that's how you pit people against people so you can control them outside. The best way to do that in the modern era is to facilitate the rise of these newfound identities that have no, uh, let's say, precedent in history, give them, assign them rights, and make them vocal about getting those rights to the point where they can destabilize any country. Mm -hmm. So you initially had these type of things, you know, women's rights, so I'm, I'm not saying I'm against women's rights, but I'm using this descriptively. This is how the United States State Department would work to pressure other countries. They would say, you guys suck at this. We mm -hmm. put you on a scorecard. You guys are not democratic. You guys need to boost it up like this. Some countries would, some countries wouldn't. The ones that are friendly with the United States get a pass because they're friends. Mm -hmm. It's pure friend ally type thing. Gay rights came about in the 70s, and we'll jump ahead for uh, for a little bit, but with Obergefell, with uh, gay marriage happening in the United States, mm -hmm. it almost became uh, a third plank in U.S. foreign policy, yeah. whereby now we have to make sure everybody passes this, and that is the opposite of a liberal worldview. A yeah. real liberal worldview is let others live their lives as they want to, so long it does not uh, impact negatively upon anybody else. Mm -hmm. But instead, you have the situation where America is now exporting its cultural mores abroad mm -hmm. coercively or overtly or even through bombs, et cetera, and saying, you got to live like us. Everybody's an American. Famous scene from Full Metal Jackets. Inside of every gook's an American trying to get out, right? <laughs> and we're going to kill yeah. them until that happens. And so that is a bit of cultural colonialism. But when you explain that to some people in the West, 
particularly American liberals, it does not process because they view it as, no, 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 this is the right way. Yeah, this we're is the enlightened. We're the enlightened we're and the, the just and the virtuous. And we are now making sure that everybody's just as virtuous as we are. So in the future, 50 to 100 years from now, you're going to have another iteration of academia saying they were treating black people in Africa the same way whites were treating black people in Africa in the 1800s by bringing Christianity to them. Mm-hmm. It's the exact same thing. It's a repeat, just that the product is different. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then as the segue to your your uh, work, your body of work on the AIDS crisis, um, the I'm thinking, you know, I was trying to think of of kind of what the frame was for you to begin that discussion when you didn't. It, it seemed to be, at least this was my interpret part of my interpretation, was that what have been some of the biggest issues uh, in, you know, um, in, in American life or in, you know, uh, online discussion over the past few years are all the, you know, trying to see through the fog of COVID and when there is an epidemic or a pandemic or a public health crisis, um, understanding it addressing it, solving it, see who the heroes and villains are, who's to blame and trying to solve uh, solve that mystery, right? And I certainly in, engaged in, you know, that that pursuit of solving that mystery. And similarly, you know, it happened of course much differently with AIDS because it happened over a longer timeline. It didn't necessarily happen internationally. It was based on sexual transmission, not airborne transmission. I mean, it seemed like you figured that AIDS was a worthwhile topic to explore because in, you know, much like people were trying to solve these mysteries about uh, the coronavirus, um, you wanted to see the parallels about, you know, what, how did the investigation go about AIDS and what truths or myths were adopted and, and, uh, and seeing the parallels there. Was I anywhere even close to the target? You're, you're, you're really close to it. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's the key thing, and you hit upon this here, is that, first of all, when you have a plague, COVID was a plague, HIV was a plague, mm-hmm. it becomes a debate between public health and politics, mm-hmm. all right? During the AIDS crisis, politics went out during, and on both sides, whether it be the fanatically pro-gay types or even the right-wing types. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it came to COVID, politics went out. It was the most brazen political display yeah. that I, I can think of. It was yeah. insane, right? Yeah. Yeah. Public health took a back seat. I started researching AIDS purely by bullshit because I was doing a lot of reading on 60s and 70s California, mm-hmm. subject that I absolutely love. Yeah, so. And then I came across this massive database of first person uh, interviews with key people in San Francisco in the early days of AIDS. Mm. Uh, a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses, a lot of guys that were sick, and I was just blown away by the material that I encountered. And there's certain parallels you can draw. You have people who, for example, Take it seriously as a public health crisis. They will not judge you socially uh, on your lifestyle. They treat you. They want to treat you. You know, Hippocrates, Hippocratic oath, Mm -hmm. uh, get you you ill, uh, sorry, uh, cure your illness, get you safe, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But then you have the people that politicize the issue right away, either for their own gain or because of their own principles. Mm -hmm. And they can't see past that. Uh, For example, in in the AIDS crisis in the early 80s, there was what was called the bathhouse debates. Mm-hmm. It split the gay community in half. Bathhouses, gay bathhouses were identified as the primary vector for AIDS, for HIV transmission in the gay community in those days. And so for our, 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 our audience, our listeners who might not be old enough to even be aware of these bathhouses, <laughs> tell, us a, tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, okay. So basically, a, a gay bathhouse, and these things sprung up in first in New York City in the 60s, they were popularized in the 70s uh, in New York, San Francisco, L.A., Miami, Atlanta, and elsewhere. 
basically you would go in there as a guy by yourself or with your buddies. You would pay an entry fee or unless you had a monthly membership, you would take off your clothes in the locker room and you'd walk around with the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Everybody had their own locker room. Inside of these places were a million rooms. Uh, some would drop ceilings, some that the ceilings didn't reach all the way up to the, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the walls didn't reach all the way up to the ceilings. But basically, you can use those rooms for sex. Mm-hmm. And so guys would go in there, gay guys, and they would have encounters, four to 10 to 20 encounters a night. Yeah, Anonymous, yeah. a lot of it was anonymous. You didn't know the name. Yeah. And at the time, in the 70s and 80s, you have to understand, gay male culture was very political with respect to sex because this identified their identity. Mm-hmm. They were finally liberated after being repressed, oppressed for so long. They took it as a badge of pride whenever they got an STD. There was the famous joke where you would get an STD, you'd go down to the free clinic for a shot and a date because you'd pick up your next guy there because <laughs> oh, he was there as well. Yeah. So when things like penicillin were working, great. But then they started picking up all these diseases one after another after another. Mm-hmm. Their immune systems collapsed and HIV found its entrance in there and the rest is history. So to get back to the bathhouse debates, in the early 80s, New York, uh, San Francisco and L.A. were having a lot of trouble shutting these places down mm-hmm. because the gay uh, lobby was getting really powerful, especially in San Francisco, where they were a serious political bloc. The gays were split between those that looked at it from a public health perspective, saying, guys, we're killing ourselves doing this mm-hmm. Just stop this. But then you had the other one saying, no, 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 no. If you shut this down now, they're never going to reopen it. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, they're going to be arresting us for having gay sex again. We're going to have to go fuck in the bushes again. Mm-hmm. There was a famous uh, line from a couple of those guys saying, first the bathhouses, next uh, next gays to the gas chambers, or something along those lines, mm-hmm. right? So when it comes to these things, whether it be COVID, HIV, et cetera, even though they're really, really different diseases, uh, illnesses, is that it's a matter of perceiving it as a public health crisis or as a political crisis. Mm-hmm. And that is one constant that I've seen in my research and researching plagues. And, and what I think that there's there's going to be a political playing field one way or the other. And it's just interesting. Let, let's be honest that with uh, COVID. It was, um, you know, it, it was masks. It was public gatherings and things of that nature and balance and the those and and the the dividing line over those who were uh, wanted to emphasize uh, keeping people away from each other and, you know, trying to uh, uh, negate this, the transmission of the airborne virus or those who said, listen, people can take their own risks and we need to live uh, a more normal life, you know, whether it's without masks or uh, or going back to the social activities that we had before the pandemic. And then the political playing field for and people, once again, I think anyone under 45, most people would not understand that really at the beginning, at the early days of the AIDS crisis, the political playing field here was whether or not um, the mass gatherings of gay men in the 70s and 80s, which a lot of which a lot of their social life was around these essentially bath, nightly bathhouse orgies were whether or not anyone had the right to tell them they couldn't do it. And they said, yeah. this is a you this is a deadly disease like, you know, the the, the fatality rate for for AIDS at that point was, I mean, if not 100 percent, pretty close to it. OK. And uh, there, you know, the the balancing of interest there is are we allowed to go fuck our brains out and have nightly orgies, anonymous orgies, maybe multiple in one night uh, uh, is that that freedom to go do that versus wait a second, this deadly disease seems to be being spread in this way. Well, yeah, for, here's a classic example. Rock in, and the band played on uh, mm-hmm. by Schiltz, the best book on AIDS crisis by far, mm-hmm. uh, which I learned a lot from and which I quoted liberally from in my seven part series. Or was that eight parts? I can't remember now. 
but Randy Schultz did a great job. And he relayed this story about this one gay guy in San Francisco who was part of Rock Hudson Circle. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those guys that stormed into those uh, protest demonstrations saying, you can't shut these bathhouses down. You cannot do that. Three months later, he shows up at the same doctor's office and shows a scar in his heel. And he goes, doctor, can you help me out? Mm-hmm. So what I told people at the beginning of COVID, and I'll, I'll give you, uh, my stance was very simple. When we first found about COVID, I said, shut everything the fuck down until we figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then when I learned that it's only the really old people or the really obese people that uh, are, are in danger of, of dying from it, mm-hmm. I said, fucking open up and sequester them. Yeah. And I stopped. I raised my hands at that point because I saw how insane it was. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but back to my point, I said at the beginning of COVID, and there are a lot of people who are saying it's bullshit, it's this, whatever. I said, you will change your mind when the bodies start piling up of those people you know, just like what happened during HIV. During the early days of AIDS, a lot of those gay guys were like, oh, this is bullshit, not yeah. can't be right. Yeah. And then their bodies started dying. Yeah, isn't it? Wasn't there one guy who literally said, uh, maybe it was a doctor, maybe it was even a li- little later on, who said, "Inject me with AIDS because I'm not scared. I believe it's a total, it's it's a fabrication." Doctor Duisberg, yes, Duisberg, he, oh, notorious AIDS denialist. They called him that. Mm-hmm. He did not believe the science. Mm-hmm. He says the science does not exist for HIV. Uh, this and that. He was a proponent of lifestyle as mm-hmm. being damaging, which is the reason why these guys. And there is an argument for cofactors because. If you use a lot of drugs, your immune system gets depressed. Mm-hmm. And when your immune system gets depressed, you're more susceptible to getting diseases, right? Mm-hmm. So he was blown out of the water eventually, but he was the one that said, inject me with HIV. I'm not going to die. There was actually a woman uh, who died of HIV. She was one of his disciples. She died about 10, 12 years ago. Mm. She was a denier. She said, I don't have it. But wow. you, you have you have these types of people. You have these types of people that you cannot reason with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of them have a point. You can never totally discount what are traditionally called conspiracy theorists. You know the French types because some of them end up being right. Yeah. As, as we've seen a lot of lately, man. Yeah, yeah, and that's we can get we have a whole other discussion about the uh, <laughs> the mechanics of of conspiracy theories and whatnot. But it's like you want you've got too many people now who because there have been so many orthodoxies and establish, establishment narratives that have been completely bullshit are being a little too lazy in their assessment of whether or not other conspiracy theories and other um, let's call it. Uh, uh, you know, themes of dissension are accurate, not subjecting them to scrutiny. Um, but in turn, it's fascinating also to look at the AIDS crisis and with the the narratives that ended up. Uh, that the public ended up running with uh, that ended up not being true and in looking at a revisionist history here and one in, in terms of origination is around a guy named Gaetan Dugas and yes that is his name Gaetan Dugas was known and referred to in that the in uh, the band played on and otherwise as patient zero and not that AIDS are not the claim that AIDS originated with him but that he was one of the main initial vectors for spread because he was a gay flight attendant in the late 70s early 80s who had a very active sex life to say the least and was noted as someone who was one of the main initial spreaders of uh, of HIV, and it turns out that that was completely false. It was completely false. Gaetan Dugas was a victim of two things. One was Randy Schultz uh, relenting from pressure from his publisher, also a gay guy, to sex up his book by putting a face to AIDS and making it sensationalized. The publisher uh, from St. Martin's Press, he took a look at the manuscript he says, Randy, we can sell 5,000 copies of this book to gay guys, or we can sensationalize it and sell 5 million. Mm. He got advice from the New York Post guy, a buddy of his there, sensationalist, of course, the outlets. 
And the guy zoned in right away on the Gaetan Dugas story. This is a 600 page book. Gaetan appears on 11 pages. Gaetan Dugas, Canadian flight attendant from Quebec. Very, very much a fancy boy, let's say. Very stereotypical uh, feminine gay type. Mm -hmm. He loved to have sex. He was quoted as saying his ideal was to have sex with a different man every day. And he lived that life. So he was in New York. He was in San Francisco. He lived in both those places. He lived in Vancouver. He lived out east in Canada. He was in Toronto for a while. But he did the entire circuit. And he was of that prime age from the middle of the 70s up until the 80s. So when the CDC first realized something was happening, they started contacting these sick people. He was already ill by early 1980. He had a Kaposi's sarcoma on his leg and elsewhere on his body. Mm -hmm. The problem he had, it was a mistake on his part in retrospect, was that he was really forthcoming with information. Mm. Because what they did is they tried to do uh, what's called tracing. And he says, you know what? I got an address book here with hundreds of names of guys that I've been with. Most guys, I don't know their names. I don't have their info. But here's one with hundreds. They stopped them at 72. So when they plotted the chart out, Matt, mm -hmm. they put him in the middle. And they put the letter O there to represent him because it was out of California. Because mm -hmm. they were doing a California study first. People saw that O, letter O, and instead they thought it was a zero. And oh, patient wow. zero because he's in the middle of his charts. Hmm. So his reputation was destroyed by a serious, let's say an honest clerical mistake, hmm. a reading mistake, and Randy Schultz's sensationalization. What they found out a few years ago through genetic testing of the virus, because they had stored samples of guys who were doing uh, hepatitis uh, studies in the late 70s, was that his strain of HIV fell dab slap uh, uh, right in the middle of the late 70s outbreak in New York City. Mm -hmm. So he was not one of the early guys. He was dead set in the middle there. Mm -hmm. He was standard fare, baseline, median, whatever you want to call it. So his reputation was damaged for decades because of that. Um, but his behavior was not the best. Yeah. In the early 80s in San Francisco, they were trying to get him to stop going to bathhouses. And he says, you can't tell me to do with my yeah. what, what I want with my body. Yeah. They could only stop him when they proved that the disease caused this illness. That was the only legal way to stop it. But by that point, other gay guys ran him out of San Francisco and he fled back to Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. There were there were an incredible, just eerie, morbid battles over, uh, you know, sexual freedom and liberation versus public health concerns around the AIDS crisis at that point. And that's the point when, you know, you mentioned that the uh, homosexual community had a, ascended to some degree of political power, but far less than they have these days. And those are uh, every and we're going to talk a little bit more about it, but just everybody uh, uh, on Nicolo Substack, you know, it could be its own three hour podcast in and of itself. But uh, his his compendium on the AIDS crisis, fascinating and getting to a, a character from that story that uh, also a lot of people are uh, are interested in these days. Anthony Fauci, um, certainly earlier in his life cycle as a, a public health bureaucrat, but he was involved in the AIDS crisis and a participant. Um, what did your research reveal about his participation? Fauci was very much a controlling type, uh, very much direct by the line. He ran into a lot of trouble with a radical group of gays, especially those guys around ACT UP. Mm -hmm. These are the guys that said, listen, we're dying. We need medicine. Treat us as guinea pigs because we're going to die anyways. Fauci was doing a lot of pushback saying, I can't do that because there's issues surrounding that. What eventually happened was they relented and they started testing these new things on these guys. And that led to a shortening 
of the time spans when they came to what these called these protease inhibitors by 1996 that basically saved these guys from death. Mm -hmm. So he was having these running battles with ACT UP. They were protesting them wherever. They're crashing the meetings. It was much more confrontational than during COVID. Mm -hmm. There yeah. is a, uh, a documentary called, uh, I think it's called Living in a Plague, How I Survived the Plague. And it's about ACT UP's battles, especially with Fauci. Mm -hmm. Fascinating stuff. Um, and so to go to the issue that gave riot that, you know, inadvertently led to your research on AIDS, uh, your exploration of Los Angeles in the 60s and 70s. And uh, some people might instinctually understand why that's such an interesting uh, place in time. But then you really think about it and it's like, wow, the hippie movement, the summer of love up in San Francisco, Joan Didion, the Manson murders, the sexual revolution, everything going on in so much of what we look back on as 20th century, the, the seminal moments in 20th century culture, um, and particularly the baby boomer generation, are out of Los Angeles and San, uh, and San Francisco in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so that's given, you know, uh, you some ideas or you have some perspectives on my city. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've mentioned that you believe that there's a dark energy here. It's a place that isn't necessarily supposed to exist. There's no other city like it, right? There's no other city in, in the world that I've seen that's organized like Los Angeles with no, with no center, with no nerve center. And it just kind of has this strange, this mountain range uh, uh, that it's it's organized around a mountain range that a bunch of like rich, glamorous, you know, uh, degenerate people live in, as opposed to a waterway or a, a river like most of the big European capitals are organized around. Still, a lot of interesting stuff. And you, as an outside, you know, everybody, I, everybody I know in LA has its their own perspective on LA, right? Um, but your perspective as a European, um, you know. Uh, well, you were raised in Canada from what I've gathered, but you have Balkan. Yeah, born in Europe, raised yeah. in Canada and moved back to Europe a decade ago. Got it. So, you know, let, let's hear it. L.A. and your thoughts and uh, your, yeah, your explanation. Well, here's the, the thing with 70s. L.A. is I'm late Gen X, right? So mm -hmm. I remember the early 80s really well. And at that time, there was a thing called, you know, it's a California thing. People would say always, this is a California thing, yes. dismissively or whatever. And that related to so many things, whether it be, you know, Californians are weird because they're all into health food mm -hmm. or they're into yoga or Californians are weird because they're really relaxed and chill. They don't yeah. care this and that. And so California was literally a state of mind in the sixties and seventies. Mm -hmm. My fascination with it is this, and, and, and it comes from a whole bunch of different areas, but basically to me, fifties and sixties, California was peak America. Mm -hmm. This was the perfect state with the perfect weather where there was real no history that was there previously even though the the natives were there etc but it, 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 there, there's not we don't know much about them sure and you had these americans reach out there to the end of the frontier and build this paradise out there you had these guys in aerospace working there for the aeronautical industry mm -hmm. you had the okies come there and live in the valley and make something on themselves or try to make something themselves, et cetera. You had the Jewish people come in from entertainment world, uh, relocate from Manhattan out to yep. LA yeah. and build Hollywood. Even before that, they literally built how humans dream for a hundred years yeah. out there through movies and stuff like that. But at the same time, there's always this feeling when I have in SoCal, it's different than San Francisco, but in SoCal and especially in LA, it feels like the city should not be there as if God one day is going to lift up the earth and just <laughs> throw it into the, into the ocean. It does not make sense. What's downtown? Downtown's a staple center. Yeah. There is no downtown there. Yeah. There's no rhyme or reason there. You can't walk through the city because it's just too fucking big. Yeah, right? But And at the same time, there's it, 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 it's, it's a metropolis of what? Almost 15 million? I don't know. Yeah. But people seem really relaxed out there. Uh, it's It's Except in certain areas, of course, I'm not going to mention those areas, but 
it does not function like a city, even though it's a very functional city. Yeah. And at the, and, and and beyond that, you had this time in the 60s and 70s where that area was generating these new social mores, these new cultural trends, exporting them to the rest of the United States and the world from there. But there was a darkness to that. And the best line of all time, Joan Didion, when she wrote about learning about the Manson murders, she said that we were all shocked. No one was surprised. Mm-hmm. Everybody was anticipating this. And that's why, you know, it sounds ridiculous. I'm not a new age type. I'm not I'm not a Bible thumper, all this shit. But you can never discount energy. Mm-hmm. You know, when you meet a chick, you, you sense the energy right away. Sure, sure. You can sense a larger energy with a group of people or surroundings or whatever. And there was a dark energy in California there. And that manifested itself in the 70s when you had Jim Jones, mm-hmm. when you had the freeway killers. It seemed that... This eruption of social liberalism went a bit too far, and people were getting taken advantage of, people were getting slaughtered, blah, blah, blah. And that has now been exported beyond California. Yeah. But everything originated down there. Yeah. Whether it, is. it being SoCal, whether it being San Francisco, you guys are the engine, the drivers. It, it, it is interesting that you mentioned with, you know, those East uh, those Jewish immigrants, mostly of Eastern European descent, that originally landed on the East Coast with Ellis Island and then decided to come. It was not it was not destiny, although it makes complete sense, but it was not the ultimate destiny. It was not a fate accompli that the entertainment industry would be out of Los Angeles. Someone had to make the decision that wait, here's where we're gonna film movies and television and and you know be the epicenter of music. Um and so that that has had it's been the you know the number one source for cultural creation and exportation um, since you know since the advent of media and yeah as you mentioned it, it didn't need to happen that way this this was a uh, from a confluence of you know the many simple twists of fate that it ended up being here and it's colored the place immeasurably since and you know even now when when the uh, film and television world don't exist like it you know in, in any semblance of what they of how they existed in the 20th century um, and now there's also even a, an interesting line of thought you know going up to northern California that with the tech companies and those apps and media apps and social media all originating out of San Francisco that at least originally were not creators and originators of content and ideas, but instead the platforms for mass distribution of those ideas, that they have exported more, even far more liberal um, uh, uh, San Francisco social views. That could be something as, as simple as the emojis that Apple chooses on the iPhone or, you know, and uh, obviously this has taken an interesting turn and will be super interesting to, to <laughs> analyze, but Elon Musk shifting the cultural mode of Twitter from extremely liberal to what I believe, at least a lot of people would call him very right wing, but I think that's ridiculous, more kind of uh, uh, the new ch- the new centrism. Um, but the decisions, and as we saw with the revelation of, of what he's uncovered uh, from the prior regime at Twitter, a lot of discretionary decisions by the, uh, the powers that be at Twitter that reflected a lot of San Francisco values. And it seems that, yes, this state, for better, for worse, and, and lately a lot for more for worse, is, is really, you know, that, like... Uh, like the the Dutch in the 15th century, just traveling around the world and seeding uh, everywhere with the rest of the world with your ideas or or your products or commerce. Um, so it is fascinating stuff. Um, another uh, another uh, topic that you have dived deep into, both foundationally and can, uh, in terms of the contemporary going goings on, um, is Russia and the Ukraine. Um, you know, I've noticed a, a bit of a fascination, or cer- certainly a lot of knowledge that you have about Vladimir Putin's Russia. And how uh, how it got to this 
uh, this point um, and this particular uh, uh, the current hostilities with the Ukraine, um, you went deep on that Berezovsky book in exploring the era of the 90s in Russia um, and the uh, and the oligarchs and Putin's initial uh, initial confrontation of the oligarchs and that as the kind of vector for him ascending into power. So um, let's start off there. You know, your interest in the, you know, uh, Russia in the 90s and your explanation. And I think there's a lot of credence to it of why you understand why the Russians liked Vladimir Putin, because he came, you know, he, he he came in as the new sheriff in town and shut down a lot of uh, thievery amongst, if you want to talk about Turbo America, that could have been Turbo Russia because the elites were robbing everyone blind. Yeah, and, and um, it, it starts from a very subjective place, Matt. Uh, I'm a Croatian. My family were hardcore anti-communists. Mm. And so naturally during the Cold War, we had a very negative view of the USSR. Being Croatian, we are somewhat suspicious of the Russians because they have very strong ties with the Serbs. So very subjective. Mm -hmm. And through the 1990s, my father and I, we were watching as the USSR fell apart and as Russia got weaker. We were happy about that. Fuck these guys. Yeah. Fuck them. And I started digging a bit into it around 2000. I was wondering about this guy, Vladimir Putin, because he looked like an interesting guy. I saw that he wasn't your typical apparatchik. He wasn't your typical ex-communist functionary. He looked interesting to me, but I was still negative on him for those very subjective and biased reasons. Mm -hmm. And what I saw him do was the most interesting thing at the start of his presidential administration. He took the seven richest guys, the Russian oligarchy, sat them down in front of the cameras on live TV and said, guys, listen, you guys have robbed this country blind. And I'll get into that in a second. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give you choice. I'll let you keep your money if you stay out of politics. Mm -hmm. If you keep playing around in politics, you're going to be in trouble. Vladimir Gusinski, a media baron, the next day moved to Madrid, Spain. You have not heard a peep from him then. That's wow. Boris Berezovsky is the guy who engineered Putin's rise mm -hmm. through politics because he was supposed to be his puppet. Yeah. Yeah. He decided to take him on, and you guys can read about this on my Substack, and there's documentaries as well about it. He ended up in London being used by MI6 there. He tried to take on Roman Abramovich, put him in court there in the UK, lost, got wiped out, and supposedly killed himself, but was probably murdered. Mm -hmm. um, Mikhail Khodorkovsky tried to take him on as well, big oil guy from Yukos. Putin put him in jail mm -hmm. for over a decade, around a decade or so. He's now causing shit all over the place in, in Switzerland and Berlin, trying to overthrow Putin, funding everything imaginable. Mm -hmm. Four other guys said, okay, we'll take your deal. Those guys are still around. They have their nickel imperium. Um, uh, Mikhail Friedman, he's got banking, he's got this, he's got that. They've done well. Putin stayed true to his word. Mm -hmm. Those guys that didn't mess with him kept their wealth. Mm -hmm. What happened in the 1990s was this, and it was a real tragedy. Communism failed. Gorbachev's attempts to reform it and save it only exacerbated the situation. So what ended up happening was that the ruble went into free fall. The country went bankrupt. It defaulted on its foreign loans. Uh, the, 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 the living standard collapsed to the point where the average Russian man's life expectancy fell to 57 years. Yeah. Like that's African tier. People were selling everything off at the same time. These guys who were in the black market originally became oligarchs, 
by hiring mafiosos, whether they were Chechen, Georgian, Armenian, or even Russian ex-KGB guys, to off their competition, mm -hmm. take their businesses. And what they started doing was influencing Yeltsin. What Yeltsin did was had his privatization guys, uh, Igor Gaidar and Chubayas. Gaidar is dead, Chubayas is still alive. And these were, these were, so, to explain, these are uh, Boris Yeltsin's chosen uh, uh, top economic advisors as the US, as the former USSR switched from, you know, a multi-billion dollar economy that was managed all by the central government into trying to transition that into a privatized, more traditional Americanized capitalist system. I mean, that's, you know, imagine what that encompasses trying to do that shift in real time. Yeah, and imagine this is the world's richest natural resource country. Yep. They got everything, uranium, oil, gas, nickel, aluminum, everything. And what they would do is they would rig the privatization process where they would bid on these huge state companies. These are companies that employ 50,000 people in a steelwork or, or 30,000 people in an aluminum mine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these oligarchs rigged it so they would get it for pennies on the dollar, mm -hmm. either by setting up their own banks or by getting Western capital to come in as their partners. So they'd get, so they'd, they'd essentially get uh, uh, American hedge funds or private equity to come in, loan them a hundred, you know, loan them $600 million to go buy a $10 billion asset. Yeah. Even 60 million for a 10 billion asset. Yeah. It, some of these prices were insane. And, wow. and I, and I give examples uh, uh, in my, in my series, but these guys got so strong, so powerful. They formed this oligarchy. Yeltsin, by that point, was a babbling drunk, mm -hmm. so they were working through his daughter. And then Berezovsky said, you know what? I And he was a, he was a trained uh, applied mathematician, PhD, brilliant guy. He decided to go for gold. I'm going to get this guy from the KGB who's doing really good work for me. I'm going to push him in. I'm going to make him Yeltsin's replacement. He's going to be my puppet as president. And that's when Putin turned the tables. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. So what happened there is he tamed the oligarchy. He defeated the Chechen rebels who were Al-Qaeda, a lot of guys coming from the Mideast as well, mm -hmm. all within the same year. And my mind started changing. Like, this guy's not bad for the Russian people. Mm -hmm. He's actually doing some good stuff. He implemented a 15% flat tax across the board that saw tax reporting go through the roof. People started paying their taxes mm -hmm. for the first time in 10, 15 years. And the economy started booming. He delivered a living standard for Russians that they never had before. Mm -hmm. So naturally, his popularity shot up. But at the same time, Western interests, financial interests, they were not happy with what he was doing with the oligarchy because their aim was to get control of the various natural resources in Russia. Madeleine Albright, Albright said it herself. She says, Russia has too much wealth, natural wealth for one country. Wow. So they wanted to use these oligarchs as partners to control it from the outside. And Putin cock blocked them. And that's why they've been trying to get rid of him ever since. And it also seems that there's a cultural colonialist uh uh, uh, or host, you know, hostility through cultural colonialism there um, because in terms of the United States trying to export some of its values, in particular those around, you know, gay rights and the the other, you know, new the new realities around gender and Vladimir Putin saying very firmly, no, we're not having that here. And it, it almost, some people have had the perspective that it's almost a cultural, host, you know, it, the, the hostilities really emanate more culturally in that the United States is demanding that all other countries that are part of the, you know, the, the Western consensus uh, economy other than China, you know, they don't demand China because we know that they're, they're a hostile enemy um, and nobody's questioning that and saying, wait a second, um, because Vladimir Putin won't play ball and tries to be the bulwark of more traditional family values and views on gender and sexuality, that they cannot allow this to exist. Exist. And that's why the United States. They can't States allow this to exist. Yeah. Here's the greatest psyop 
that the CIA is pulled. A lot of people will criticize American intelligence agencies saying they're dumb and that I don't believe that for a second. Think about this. <laughs> How do you get American liberals? That's where the peace movement was. That's where the anti-movement uh, uh, was parked since Vietnam. How do you get them on side for a conflict against the guy that Putin? Well, yeah. You yeah. show that he's the ultimate liberal. And then how do you make it? How do you buttress it? How do you make it even stronger? He's the guy that put Trump into power. Mm -hmm. They fucking want to get rid of him. Damn. They are fanatical now about this. It's a great sign up. I'm not saying Putin's an innocent guy. I'm not saying Ukrainians should not be defending their homeland. They should. Mm -hmm. But there's two wars being fought here, Matt. One is between Russia and Ukraine. The other one's between Russia and the United States. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we are. And, we, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so... It's it's sad to say, but you want to see the United States get its nose punched in a little bit so that it could do a little bit of its own self-analysis. There's no uh, accountability in the United States. No one got brought down because of the Iraq war. No yeah. one got in trouble for the debacle in Afghanistan. Until you guys get your nose bloodied, these people are going to have the incentive to just to keep doing this over and over and over again. Well, it's interesting. Maybe and maybe this is the one place where I really do agree with you on Turbo America is that, yes, they, it, there was not as much direct consequence and punishment for the disasters in Iraq and Afghanistan as there should uh, should have been. But in terms particularly uh, in Iraq, George Bush and anybody uh, associated with him are essentially um, ha have been relegated to the dustbin of history. It, it's crazy. The not, necessarily, not necessarily. Yeah. Some of the, the neoconservatives have not. Those fuckers Fucking have David slithered Trump. You are back correct in. on him. Those they've slithered back in through anti-Trump politics. They've done well by doing that. But the lack of accountability, it's not only with respect to government, it's in journalism as well. Mm -hmm. How many of these journals have been caught lying about shit yeah. and they only get promoted? They only yeah. get a better job. They they fall upwards, Matt. Yeah. That's that's the clown world, right? That is that is the state of affairs that America now finds itself in, where there's no accountability, there's no consequence for anything. I mean, in looking at the listen, d d there ended up being some consequence for Donald Trump for his his antics and his missteps and his sloppiness that I think a lot was brought on by once again elevating his uh you know his his own interests as opposed to the interests of that that you know led to his victory in 2016 and that he actually had an exciting and interesting uh, uh platform um. But yeah, in terms of the media, all that Russiagate stuff it turned out to, to be complete bullshit, complete fabrication. Complete bullshit. Yeah, no consequences. There's guys, there's, there's guys who have done great work on that. Aaron Matei, Greenwald's done some good work. And, and you see, but we all saw through it. Matt, you saw through it. Of course I did, but so many other educated, smart people didn't, and it drives me nuts. It's part of the reason <laughs> we're having this conversation right now, and I'm doing, right. doing this podcast. I mean, it's in. It'll make my. It'll, uh, people ask why I decided to get more aggressive about you know entering the public square because my fucking head would explode seeing these people, these <laughs> incompetents, continue to lie and pedalize and do such poor investigation and forensics and every just distorting the public conversation in so many different directions, and nobody seems to give a shit. At least a few people have begun to give a shit a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, and man, you know, it'd be great to discuss uh, that with you another time. I know that you have to go, but another place that you and I definitely do intersect in that even though we are acknowledging some pushback selectively on uh, what we call wokery and some of these these dynamics that we, you know, more left-wing values that have now uh, become the dominant prevailing ethos in the United States, that the the idea that, that wokeness is in retreat or anything like that is complete, complete nonsense and it's probably more powerful than ever, at least close to it. Um, so that's a conversation we might need to have another time. But man, did we cover a a lot of ground today um and i think this conversation 
is very indicative of you know what's fascinating about your subject uh, your Substack, and you know from the deep dives on books about subject matter super you know super taught subject matter to more uh, commentary and analysis on contemporary politics uh, and economics and you know and and strategic you know strategic hostilities and rivalries um, so it's all incredibly fascinating stuff and uh, you know I don't know if you're gonna finally be out here in LA anytime soon uh, and to kind of check out some of your perspectives that you have definitely developed on us here in the city of angels or i haven't been i haven't been to la in about seven eight years i'm way overdue thank you we will naturally meet up we'll meet up with my other buddies as well i appreciate the kind words you're saying about my sub stack thank you very much matt we will discuss that subject and other subjects another time i had a lot of fun good show thank you mateo my pleasure my friend Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.